Quick question from me and the Making Money team. Would you like us to come into your workplace to teach you and your colleagues more about personal finance? It's an absolute joke that we're not taught what to do with money, and this knowledge gap makes most people much poorer over their lifetimes. Take your work-based pension. Most people have no idea what the fund they're invested in does, and plenty of people just opt out altogether. We can cover whatever is most important, from the basics to complex financial retirement planning supported by qualified financial advisors who are not there to sell you anything. We take different approaches for different people in a company depending on stuff like their age or their income. Anyway, if you think people you work with could benefit from financial education, then please email will at getmost.co.uk so he can explain more. It doesn't matter what your role is in the business, we want to hear from you. So email will at getmost.co.uk. Having the vocabulary to be able to label exactly what went wrong with your decision making is really useful. We can all be smarter. David Robson is an award-winning science writer who specialises in psychology and neuroscience. He's the author of the book The Intelligence Trap. It's all about how being smart or an expert doesn't necessarily mean you won't make bad decisions. This is important when you're dealing with money to realise what might be biasing you. But don't worry, it doesn't just happen to you, it happens to all of us. There's studies showing that like people's investment patterns change like depending on whether their favourite football team won the day before or not. And it's almost like once emotion enters the chat, these are where these cognitive biases kind of kick in. You want to just like turn down the emotional volume just a bit to allow you to get into that reflective state of mind. We need to recognise our intuitions, but then we need to analyse them. So we're going to look at cognitive biases and, and how they affect decision-making, especially around finances because of the podcast itself. And then also kind of why smart people make dumb decisions. You're going to point out again that we're not very intelligent, I think, now by asking us a question out your book. Cool. Yeah. So this question really, it's not so much about whether you are intelligent or not, but it's whether you actually apply the intelligence you do have. Okay. So actually, even people with really high IQs perform quite badly at this task. Okay, so here it is. It's like a logic puzzle. So Jack is looking at Anne, but Anne is looking at George. Jack is married, but George is not. Is a married person looking at an unmarried person? After lunch, this is hitting heavy. <laughs> Mate, I'm going to need that question one more time. <laughs> so the options are yes, no, or cannot be determined. Okay. And so I'll read it again. Jack is looking at Anne, but Anne is looking at George. So you have these three people lined up, each looking at a different person. Uh, Jack is married, but George is not. Is a married person looking at an unmarried person? Yes, no, or cannot be determined. Jack is looking at Anne, Anne is looking at George. Jack is married, George is not. Exactly. Is a married person looking at an unmarried person? Yep. Yes, no, or cannot be determined. I've got my answer. So Jack is looking at Anne, Jack is married. Jack is looking at Anne, Anne is looking at George. So is Anne married, is George married? Can't be determined. Mm, that's what I thought, first of all. Uh, I don't know, because with these riddles, they always hit you with a word that's like the giveaway or something like that, don't they? And that's kind of like the clue into it. 
Stop being too intelligent and give us an answer. Nah, well, <laughs> I'm going to go with yes because you went with... Cannot be determined. Yeah, and you said that, that you went with that initially and that's probably wrong then, so... Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of you is right and one of you is wrong. Okay. okay. But shall we talk yeah, about we'll, that we'll talk later about that. on? Back yeah. to it at the end. We'll talk about yeah. that at the end. What I want to start with is, that it's called The Intelligence Trap and the book focuses on the fact that you can be intelligent and you can make bad decisions. And one thing that struck me when I was listening to the book is the definition of intelligence that we have. What is intelligence? Right. So the way it's been defined for like a hundred years is this kind of generalized brain power that underlies all decision-making. So it's almost like mental energy. Um, and we test that with these IQ tests, which we kind of are familiar with some non nonverbal reasoning questions, you know, where you have to like rotate cubes or um, also verbal tests of things like vocabulary, your working memory, like how easily you can um, recall information that you've just listened to. And we know that that kind of those measures of general intelligence do correlate with lots of important things in life, but mostly academic achievement. And that shouldn't be a surprise because that was precisely what they were initially designed for, was just to predict which kids would perform better at schools and also to find out which ones might need a bit more help. And what the latest research kind of tells us is that actually generalized intelligence doesn't predict a lot of really important things to do with our decision-making and how we uh, form our beliefs. So you can have very intelligent people according to an IQ test who still, you know, might believe fake news, uh, fall for like crazy conspiracy theories, all of these kinds of things. You used an example of um, someone, I, I don't know, they, maybe they'd won the Nobel Prize or something, but they basically believed some pretty extreme, they had some pretty out there views, didn't they, on certain things? Right, Kerry Mullis. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he came up with the polymerase chain reaction. He was a biochemist. Um, so that's what we use in the PCR tests uh, for COVID. Um, it's really important in all kinds of like genetic testing and forensics or biology. So you can't really discount like his genius in coming up with this transformative technology. Um, but yeah, you read his autobiography. And he just believed like every wacky theory under the sun. Um, so, you know, the more benign kind of um, end of the spectrum, he believed in astrology, the astral plane. He <laughs> thought he saw this kind of glowing raccoon at night that he thought was some <laughs> I alien. I mean, that's gone back. That's pretty <laughs> Astrology, <laughs> glowing raccoon. Yeah. And then, but then there were also more sinister kind of theories. Um, so he denied the link between HIV and AIDS, even really? when like everyone knew that the virus was causing Even though disease. that's his kind of world. Exactly. That's that was what was so weird. I always thought about intelligence whenever I thought about it. It's so relative. Like If you took Einstein and a mechanic and plonked them in the desert with a broke down car, who's the smartest guy in that situation? Right. Exactly. Know? That's Yeah. And it seems to me that the way we frame intelligence in our society actually doesn't like, I've always been told I've talked too much my whole life, all, all throughout school. Damien's got loads of potential, he just talks too much. Now it's like, that's how I make my living. Right. But that was never championed. And it's yeah. like you say, our, our view of intelligence kind of pushes us into boxes, doesn't it? Yeah, that's been a major issue. And so people say, like when we use like IQ type tests for um, like university admissions and some to study medicine or, you know, in most university uh, universities in America, actually. It's almost like you're selecting people that will only be your, you've used your measure to like predict a, a really fine 
like narrow band of skills and you're not really looking at whether other forms of intelligence would actually lead to different kinds of success even within those fields. So this guy called Robert Sternberg, um, he came up with a different kind of intelligence test that looked at kind of analytical intelligence, which is the kind we measure with IQ, but also he'd had measures of like creative intelligence and practical intelligence. So practical intelligence could be a bit like your kind of mechanic in the desert, mm. um, but that's also just like how practical and pragmatic you are in getting what you want done. So even if you're a scientist, you need practical intelligence to um, design your experiments and then to get other people on board, to get the funding, to kind of work effectively with your colleagues, to you know overcome challenges. And what he found was that the combination of those three different kinds of intelligence was much more predictive of people's academic success than just the um, abstract intelligence test. So what are the three... Uh, practical intelligence, creative intelligence, and then analytical intelligence, which is much closer to IQ. What about um, EQ that everyone's talking about, like emotional? So that would come in this kind of um, framework under practical intelligence, okay. actually, because it's also practical intelligence is also about how well you can read other people and motivate them and get them to kind of cooperate rather than kind of scuffle your plans. I think the best thing about your research and the way you've presented it is it it disarms this argument that because you're smart, you're somehow better at everything. You know, yeah. it's you can fill out an IQ test and you can maybe think about which way a cube rotates, but it doesn't mean you're going to be better with your finances or actually yeah. the opposite in certain examples. That's exactly it. And I think the analogy that I was kind of thinking of earlier is, say, with athletics and height, like... If you're entering, like, if you're going to be a basketball player, it's like a hey, big advantage to be tall. If you're, if you're a jockey, like, it's not. But it's like we've designed our whole education system as if it's like the basketball court and intelligence is height. And then we're just saying these people are better because they're more intelligent according to this one measure and they succeed in that particular field. But I think what the research now shows is that we should be considering all different kinds of fields and how different forms of intelligence or you know different traits and abilities might be adaptive for, for different contexts. The one way you've undermined this like an understanding that intelligent people are better are through the use of cognitive biases, haven't you? You've basically shown that they apply across the spectrum and in some cases more so when they're intelligent. Could you explain to us what a cognitive bias is? Cognitive biases are these um, kind of systematic errors we make in our decision-making, and they were first studied primarily in like uh, financial decision-making. Um, so you have things like anchoring, and that is where you might hear like a totally random number, and the size of that number will then anchor your thinking so that it then affects kind of what price you're willing to pay for something. Mm -hmm. And salespeople would use that all the time. Like they might show you like a real luxury good, even though you're not interested in buying like the most expensive at all. But just having that price in mind before making your decision means that you're more willing to pay more money for something more than it's worth, essentially. Three-tier um, pricing systems, popcorn, yeah. the medium. They, don't, they, they No one wants to buy the bigger one, but when you hear it's only 20p yeah. more expensive than the middle, you go, well, I might as well get that because you're right. anchored to the lower price. Because it seems like more value yeah. for money. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We have others like um, that I think are kind of more serious in a way, like the sunk cost bias. Um, so that's where we, once we've like really invested a lot of money or time into a project, um, we'll just keep on throwing more resources into it, even when it's failing. And we could actually, you know, save much more if we just kind of quit while we were ahead, basically. I think a lot of people do that with stocks as well. Like if they 
put in lots of money and then it goes down. They're like, they watch it going down. They're like, no, it'll come back up and they don't want to just cut their losses. So they just keep watching Even it go down. Even if there's a better investment to the left or because right, they've got they em- put the money in. Emotional yeah. or cognitive bias to it because they're like, oh, I bought this and I thought it was a good idea. And then it'll come back and they just keep holding on to it when they should just cut their losses. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of this um, manifestation of something more general called loss aversion. We just hate the idea of the possibility of losing what we already have. Um, and that's really important for investments too, because you've got these studies showing that even if the stu- like the odds are stacked in your favor, um, some people would prefer to have like a smaller amount of money, like straight away that is guaranteed, rather than making this like slightly risky option that has a higher expected value in the future. Um, so it means you're all- if you're always playing it safe, you're never going to win big either. Where, at what point do you see the t- scales tip from a 50-50, I'm a, I'm a no every time, say, to a like four, it's got to be like three times in your favor or four times. Is there a point where pe- most people then cross over and take the risk? I think that would really depend on the context, actually. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think the threshold is really as high as we would expect, actually. So like in that, I mean, you know, even when the odds are pretty good um, and well in your favor, and even if you have multiple options to kind of take the same risk. So, you know, over say 10 investments, if they're all stacked in your favor, you're more likely to win, win out than if you take like the smaller sum at the beginning, but people still just want to take those smaller sums. The guaranteed. Yeah, exactly. What, yeah. what From an evolutionary perspective, what's the benefit there, do you think? Mm, yeah, that's a tough question, but I think... In evolution, it kind of it was often better to play it safe. That makes um, sense. You know, like you don't want to kind of risk losing all of your food if the other option is you don't um, want to be the first guy to eat the new berry. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 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 you don't want to risk being poisoned. You don't want to risk losing all of your year's resources all in one go, even if the odds were slightly stacked in your favour. And do you find people that that have a uh, that take more risk tend to do better? Or, you know, or we yeah. fear the worst outcome, but do the people who don't, do they perform better? Exactly. Yeah, they would in those kinds of bets. So like the rational thing in those kinds of bets is to kind of take the risk. And uh, so they would win out, but um, most people are just loss averse. So they just won't take that. Yeah. So with the anchoring bias, there's a really um, interesting example we always used to see in property when I worked in property. You know, the, the first offer you make dictates the price you pay. Mm. So you should lowball on the first one because then you get to negotiate from that point. Yeah. There's always going to be a point of negotiation because it's expected that you make an offer, they counter it. So you know that, you know, but people would come in and go, it's 200 grand house. I'll pay 190, 195, okay. But if they'd have gone 180, they would have ended up at 190. Mm. Does that make sense? That yeah, to totally. Say? But I mean, I know some people, I won't even give any details because it's so embarrassing for them, but they would do the total opposite. <laughs> they actually put in a really high offer for something. and They, they actually basically... Um, like almost like gazumped themselves when right, they were okay. <laughs> yeah, the, the buying. Thing, people yeah. think that the asking price is is the value or like what it's yeah. worth, when it's actually it's what the other person wants. Exactly. And, and it's reframing it from that perspective makes you realize I don't have to give them that and they're not going to be offended. You know, there's a, there's a load of like social norms involved in it where it's like we don't like to barter in this country say and that that feeds into that decision making yeah exactly i mean in the example i'm thinking of it wasn't property but it was the equivalent of 
paying someone offering above the asking price because I thought they'd be guaranteed to make the sale. But all it did was increase the seller's confidence. So right. They yeah. ended up paying way over the odds in oh, the end. Because then really the seller to starts yeah. to think, oh, this is worth more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did, we want to focus on the money thing. And, and I think it's, it's, it's good that it applies to money in the most and we can give the best examples. And it's, and it's almost like once a motion enters the chat, these are where these cognitive biases kind of kick in for a lot of people, like, you know, sunk cost fallacy and things like that. Yeah. Do intelligent people struggle with this in the same way? Yeah. I mean, so if you look at things like the sunk cost bias, um, there's basically no correlation with intelligence at all for how susceptible someone is. And if like general intelligence really was this very broad kind of mental energy, um, raw brain power that underlies all decision making. That just doesn't make sense. Like intelligent people should be less susceptible to that, but they're just not. Uh, the same goes for stuff like um, temporal discounting. So whether, again, it's like whether you will invest a bit of money in your pensions now because you're kind of taking that away from yourself that you could spend on something nice, mm -hmm. but you know that in the future it will pay back loads more. People are just really bad at that and being intelligent doesn't really make you any less, any uh, more rational in making those decisions. You had an example of, um, which I think was surprising for me to read around financial well-being and debt and being at credit card limits with intelligence as well. Right, exactly. You know, um, there's no real signs that people who are smarter are any less likely to um, form those kinds of debts. Um, the same with like suffering from financial fraud. There's actually some evidence, I'd say it's more anecdotal, that um, more educated people are actually more susceptible to fraud. You said that you, they yeah. might be targeted. Who was the guy with the cocaine in the Yeah. Bank. Oh yeah, the, the cocaine suitcase. Oh yeah, shall yeah. I yeah. tell that story? Yeah, definitely, case. that's a good story. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, a good story. it was a, uh, one of the kind of things that inspired me to write the book. Um, so, cause I was working a new scientist in the newsroom. So obviously people were quite interested in this. It was about this famous physicist who was meant to be in the running for a Nobel Prize, but he got divorced in his 60s and decided to start online dating. And soon, like, this really gorgeous woman started chatting to him, who was like this, I can't remember, like a Czech supermodel, alleging to be this Czech supermodel. Um, and he just fell in love with her, like, you know, completely. And so then after a few weeks, she was like, why don't you come and meet me on a modeling shoot in La Paz, Bolivia? So he was like, okay, then. He was living in North Carolina, so he got on the flight. Now, when he got there, she had been called to another shoot, apparently, but she had left her suitcase. Um, and she, so she sent him a message being like, we'll meet up again sometime in the future. Could you just pick up my suitcase and take it back with you and then bring it to me on our next date? Um, so he did that. Um, he was called to the gate as he was about to board his plane. He thought he was going to be upgraded to first class, um, but he was arrested and they opened the suitcase and found like two kilograms of cocaine and that. Surely you would think an intelligent person would open the suitcase. If and right. even say in the airport, has anyone asked you to pack this for me? You think like common sense, someone asked you to take a bag, you take it. He wanted to believe though. Yeah, and yeah the heart he wants what it wants and it's more yeah. powerful than And the then brain. Your, your brain kind of, yeah, like you, you convince yourself, yourself that, yeah, yeah, she he loves me. He probably knew because yeah. he would have checked the bag, wouldn't he? Like he probably knew that he didn't want to know what was in the bag almost. Right. I mean, so I can't remember if it was locked or if it was like hidden in the lining actually, but oh. his friends had warned him. Yeah. Like he'd been in touch with people and they, when he said he was going to meet her and they were like, this is a scam, just like stay away. But like you said, like you, you, you're you so invested in this 
in the story you're telling yourself in this case um, that this woman was in love with him, that he just he he wasn't behaving rationally, and that's a specific form of bias that we call motivated reasoning. And essentially, what happens with motivated reasoning is that people, you know, they come to this belief they really want to protect, and then they just apply their intelligence to protect that belief. So they might. Um, you know, use their intelligence to come up with like really sophisticated arguments for why they're right, or they might use it to dismiss all of the people who are telling them that they're wrong by finding out tiny little loopholes in their, their logic that they think they've found that would prove them right and the other person wrong. And that is, that's one of the main fuels, uh, main reasons why that um, smart people are not only as susceptible to foolish decision-making as less intelligent people. But in these cases, when you have that really strong emotional pull to an idea, you're actually more susceptible because the smarter you are, the easier it is to form those justifications and to dismiss your opponents. Yeah, because you just say, I'm smarter than everyone else and all right, you know, exactly. I, can, I can think of these reasons but and stuff. Yeah. Isn't that a bit like opposing to what you were mentioning before about people like go doing what doing what their brain tells them to do, like taking a risk essentially. So like, can it work mm. out well for you on the other side? Like it, with the same theory like i'm i'm sure that i'm right i'm i'm smart you make all these excuses and then you take a risk and then it pays off for example everyone in the world told me stop buying crypto it's risky <laughs> and go. now it's, it's doing very well so like do you think that smart people can sometimes benefit like can it can it be a double edged sword yeah it totally can and so i think what we actually need is it's not like i'm saying we should like always go with our intuitions or always um go with like deliberative thinking but we just need to be smarter about when we go of our intuitions and when we don't, um, just being aware of that possibility essentially is really important. Yeah. And also, I think it's really important that we highlight that smart people can be scammed because even scam people that have been scammed think that they're idiots at that point because yeah. of that narrative of only an idiot would get scammed, you know, and then they hide and they don't report it. I, I went to number 10 to, to talk about um, like fraud prevention and like hardly anyone reports that they've been a victim of fraud because of the shame associated with it. Yeah, which is like victim blaming. Yeah, it is. really. It is. Yeah, like we need to have like more self compassion actually for our mistakes. And like self compassion sounds like this kind of woolly term, but actually, um, you know, there's good scientific research behind that showing that if you do accept that you've made a mistake and that it doesn't say something awful about you as a person, you're actually far less likely to make the same mistake again. And you're more likely to take proactive steps to kind of correct what you've done. Um, so yeah, we need to encourage people to be kinder to themselves when they do make these kinds of errors. And do you find, you know, are people predisposed to a bias or do circumstances in their life mean that they are at that moment? So as an example, I know he wouldn't have cheated on his wife, but as a married man, he might have seen through that scam forever. But as a lonely man questioning, am I going to die alone here? Yeah. And a model rolls up. He, is he more susceptible to that bias in that moment? Yeah, exactly. And I think this is something that maybe sometimes the science has neglected in the past, but I think context is always really important because it's like when you have that emotional pull to an idea, like your context is really going to you know, determine whether that pull is strong or weak. And like you said, if he was happily married, it would have been much weaker than if he was feeling really lonely and this felt like his last kind of chance to have a romance. Is it is it always good to look at the situation or do you think some scams just work because they're a good scam? Yeah, I mean, I think they work because they're a good scam, but I think that's also because they're t 
probably deliberately targeting the people we'll who send are a million more emails and you're going to get someone that's, that's vulnerable in that uh, moment right? you throw enough like mud at the wall and some Something of it sticks yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. one thing that i've seen within the finance space mentioning crypto is the echo chambers that exist around scams mm-hmm. so people would buy into a narrative they, they see someone get rich that's just like them out of pure luck um they get a confirmation bias that, yeah. that, that it can happen and then they find a token, which is a pump and dump scheme, essentially. Yeah. But then the community around that just becomes really internalized. And they, they all be like, this is going to work. We're all going to be rich. We're all going to be millionaires. And even when the thing is crashing, even when the founders are dumping the coins and selling <laughs> out, they're still, they ride it into the floor. It, yeah. Like pack mentality around like confirmation bias and stuff. Yeah, which definitely exists. I mean, like, so in the book, I kind of do talk about kind of... um the group intelligence trap and that you see that in lots of organizations in so many different circumstances you know even like in politics with like the bay of uh pig scandal like each person has their individual biases and if they're all aligned in the same direction and no one's kind of questioning what the other person's thinking that's a really toxic group dynamic can you guess what the biggest learning has been from doing this podcast or even my youtube channel It's that the most important investment you can make is in you. So for me, my path to real wealth isn't through investing, it's by building this business. And that's why I'm happy that we're working with Hostinger. Hostinger help entrepreneurs, freelancers, and side hustlers with their websites. My favorite thing is their AI website builder, which helps anyone create a professional website with zero coding experience. You just describe your goal in a couple of sentences and the AI creates a beautiful looking website, just like magic. You can then customize it, use the AI assistant to generate SEO-friendly text, and even use their AI logo maker. It's fast, user-friendly, and of course, what I like the best is it's great value for money. You can get website hosting in a free domain from £2.99 a month. So if you want a website, then check out Hostinger. And if you use the code MAKINGMONEY, that's making money, all one word, you'll get 10% off. And I've left a link in the description for you. Before I became a creator, I was a sales guy. I mean, I love selling. It's how I rebuilt my life after some wrong turns in my 20s. I also delivered Chinese takeaways on the side, but that was more fun money so I could go out on a night without feeling guilty. Sales was where the real money was at. And one tool that I found really useful was LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It's a sales intelligence platform that helps you identify and then get into conversations with high value customers so you can drive more revenue. You can use it to look for key signals like recent job changes, so you can find buyers who are most likely to convert. And because they've got a billion people on the platform, I mean, the chances are your targets are going to be on LinkedIn. Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data so you can get into conversations with the people that matter. So if you want to give Sales Navigator a try, you can get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash upsell. That's LinkedIn dot com slash U-P-S-E-L-L for a 60-day free trial. The conversation that I have with people the most that kind of blows their mind is when they finally realize com- the benefits of compound interest mm-hmm. on, on an investment. So yeah. you sit them down, you show them a compound interest calculator and you go, if you took away 200, 300, whatever a month at 9% for 30 years, look at that number. And it kind of blows their mind. But obviously you talk about in the book that that's a key bias or a key flaw of our brains is, is visualizing that process? Yeah, this is called the exponential growth bias. And mm. essentially people just really struggle to you know, like visualize how big 
um, exponential growth can become and how quickly it reaches huge numbers. And we saw that with the pandemic as cases were increasing, even though you only had like a small number of cases, say in February um, 2020, people, you know, politicians like the general public just weren't, couldn't recognize that actually it would only take a few weeks for it to kind of infect, you know, a really big portion, uh, proportion of the population. And, you know, I was one of those people who just hadn't really registered it. And, you know, it's a classic intelligence trap because I studied maths at Cambridge, but I still was not applying my knowledge of exponential growth. This was the R number. They were like, we need to suppress exactly, the R number because yeah. like they were drawing the graphs, weren't they? Of yeah. And, you know, I think people realized, like I realized it was dangerous, but I also thought it won't, I didn't, fully realize how quickly it was going to grow and, you know, how even a few days could make a big difference. Why do we struggle with that? Um, Why do you, with a maths background? So I think like something we haven't spoken about is cognitive reflection, which was actually what that um, Jack and George test was measuring. And that is when we just kind of use heuristics in the brain, so like rules of thumb, um, so we're going with our kind of intuitions and these decisions rather than thinking carefully about what's actually happening. Um, so it's not the opposite of motivated reasoning, but it's a different form of the intelligence trap because this is almost about being too thoughtless, essentially, rather than motivated reasoning being about applying your intelligence in a one-sided manner. Um, so if you lack cognitive reflection, we call that cognitive miserliness. And I think I was just being a cognitive miser. Like I wasn't actually doing even like very rough kind of um, calculations in my head to kind of visualize how quickly that could grow. And yeah, this is really common. Um, People who lack cognitive reflection, who are cognitive misers, tend to be more susceptible to lots of those biases that we mentioned. And it doesn't, cognitive reflection just doesn't really correlate well with IQ tests. So there's plenty of people who are super smart, but cognitive misers. So what's the opposite of cognitive bias? Cognitive unbias? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cognitive say, neutrality. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess no one's come up with that. No one's term. come up with it. Right, I've coined yeah. it here, guys. You heard it first. Cognitive unbias. <laughs> oh, I'm saying like objective thinking as well. Okay, <laughs> Object, objective thinking bias. <laughs> well, Warren Buffett is obviously a very successful investor and yeah. he's benefited from compounding. Most people don't realize that he didn't have much wealth until he was after six. He's been compounding his wealth for 60 odd years. So yeah. the numbers get pretty scary. And he right. often says it's all about temperament. It's yeah. it, He's not that intelligent, not compared to yeah. his peers. He knew smarter people. And it's just all about, you know, mindset. Which, what he's actually talking about is his ability to control his own cognitive biases, I'd imagine, or biases. Yeah, it? exactly. I don't know how true this is, but I'd heard that like he keeps a diary like each evening of like, and he keeps track of like which of his decisions were good and which were bad. In psychology, people call that a cognitive autopsy. Um, and it's a really powerful way of making sure that you actually apply your knowledge of bias, essentially, like to constantly uh, keep track of your mistakes. Um, and yeah, I don't think many of us do that. We might get negative feedback. We might have like some big error and we just put it to the back of our minds. And I think again, this comes back to that idea of self-compassion. Most people want to shy away from their mistakes because they think it reflects something bad about them. Um, but because they don't really look at those mistakes and analyze them, they just keep on making the same mistakes again and again. When you said like, if you get people get frauded, they like keep quiet. They don't tell anyone like yeah. the, the shame of telling people like, I definitely got fooled before, but I just kept it quiet and I didn't tell anyone I'm Did now. You? Yeah. See? Oh, now everyone knows. <laughs> telling the world. Didn't tell anyone, I'm telling everyone. But um 
I just kept it quiet and I was now as a result, I guess I'm super, super paranoid about. So now any yeah. investment I'm going into, I do like way more due diligence and I like research the CEO and I think about what could go wrong. Whereas before I used to just like, my son was like, this is a good investment. I throw money at it, throw money. Like, yeah, cool. I'm going to be rich. It's going to be great. But now yeah. since the day I lost the money, I was like, okay, I was probably just like cognitive bias thinking this is going to be fine. I know like the CEO of the company is going to be fine, but really just because you know someone doesn't mean that you can't get frauded. So, um, it was in crypto. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think for me, I kind of just, it made me more, kind of put barriers up and like, you don't want to get burned again. So yeah. do you think that happens as well? Or yeah, I think you it don't does. have to like tell yeah. the world and be like, I got frauded. So now I won't do it again. Yeah. Do like, people learn but, from? Do people yeah, learn? Yeah. So that's it. So it's kind of related to what I was saying, but there's this other kind of cognitive trait that we look at, which is um, the growth or the fixed mindset, which was studied in education. Uh, but it actually applies to kind of anywhere where we apply our brains, essentially. So people with a growth mindset would be more likely, they recognize that their abilities can kind of develop over time. And so if they make a mistake, it's like, well, that is painful, but they also see that they can learn from that mistake and they can avoid it in the future. Uh, people with the fixed mindset believe that all of their abilities are kind of innate and like central to who they are, but they can't really be changed at all. So if someone like that makes a mistake that they find quite shameful, that's going to trigger like this sense of threat because it's like it's questioning something very core about their personality. So those people with the fixed mindset are less likely to then analyze their mistakes. They're more likely to either just defend their behavior or just turn a blind eye to it, but they're, they're not so likely to learn from the uh, mistakes that they've made. So you want to have the growth mindset, not the fixed mindset. What what split do you see? You know, I mean, you might not even know, but what percentage of people are growth versus fixed or do we all start off as fixed? Yeah, I'm not sure for certain. I imagine it probably is roughly 50-50, but I think like, again, this can depend on context. Like you might have a growth mindset about I don't know, like your music playing abilities, but you might have a fixed mindset about your financial decision-making. You might just think, I'm no good at financial decision-making and never will be. Or you might think I'm an absolute genius at this. Um, but also that this is not something that can be improved with practice too. You just think you're either naturally good or you're not good at all. So many people say to them, I'm no good with money. I'm bad with that, money, that, yeah. that is a very common line, isn't it? And with your book, one thing that was kind of eye-opening for me was, if you think you're good at something, that can make you a lot worse worse at it because you slip into like an autopilot state where you, you make rushed and bad decisions. Yeah, exactly. And so this is um, something called the curse of expertise, especially um, where that really shows up. And it's where you find that super um, qualified people sometimes end up making worse mistakes than novices. Um, Do you have any examples? Yeah, I mean, one that really struck me was with... Um, forecasting like geopolitical forecasting so there was this huge kind of tournament run by uh philip tetlock in the us where he just got loads of people like amateurs and like professional pundits to predict all kinds of world events and some people came out as like super forecasters so they were just tended to be very accurate in what they predicted and they were also self-aware so if they didn't feel confident in something they you know, were generally more likely to be wrong than if they felt really confident in their um, predictions. Um, but there was a group of experts who, you know, were professional pundits, would appear in newspapers, on TV. Um, and they were not just um, 
bad. They were actually worse than if they'd guessed randomly. Right. Um, and that's because they they had these they had like their method or they had like a particular really fixed worldview that meant they weren't really updating their opinions at all. And we see this, you know, in all kinds of expertise. It's called earned dogmatism, where you reach a certain point in your career or education where you begin to feel like you've kind of earned your stripes and now you don't really have to question your judgments anymore. So you stop listening to other people's points of views and you you kind of just, you get very entrenched in your thinking. Very dangerous in medicine or science or anything like this where mm. they're constantly changing. Exactly. Yeah, there's all kinds of biases like that in medicine. Also, doctors are susceptible, kind of understandably, but I mean, they shouldn't be because it's not rational. But like, if you have a really difficult patient, they're just less likely to take their symptoms seriously. If you have like a super attractive person come into the doctor's surgery and say they're ill, doctors are less likely to take them seriously. Oh, because, really? Because they're like, we associate being attractive with being healthy. Oh, wow. And so you're like, oh, you don't really look ill. Um, you look fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but I mean, again, these are not conscious decisions, yeah. but it's just the swaying you know, their decisions quite subtly. So how do we recognize these biases then? If like, if, if highly educated, smart people, if it's ingrained, if they're absolutely everywhere, how do we spot them? That's what's so optimistic about the research is that actually there are loads of ways to um, raise your awareness. So I think just, you know, like I'm not saying it just to plug my book, but I mean, <laughs> like reading about them is a good place to start, obviously. Um, having the terms- You should plug the book, it's really good. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. But like having the vocabulary to be able to label exactly what went wrong with your decision making is really useful. Um, but then the problem is you, you know, you might learn it and then you forget it or you just don't apply it um, because of that cognitive miserliness. Um, so you have to build things into your routine to make sure that you are more systematic. Um, so the cognitive autopsy that I mentioned earlier, where you kind of go over your wrong decisions and try to work out kind of what had led to those mistakes, that's one way you can do that. Um, obviously, you know, that's good for learning in the future, but to prevent um, errors kind of in the next decision you make, another option is to perform a, a cognitive pre-mortem so that is where you're actually they're trying- They're so morbid, all these terms. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like autopsy, pre-mortem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, actually, um, these terms came from this guy, Pat Crossgree, who was working with doctors um, to reduce cognitive bias in medicine, which they were might be why- <laughs> Right, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, he you know, was really troubled by the potential for diagnostic error to actually lead to deaths. Um, but yeah, so the pre-mortem is where you actually- you try to imagine the worst possible scenario, like the worst outcome of your decision, and look at all of the potential errors you might be making kind of that could lead to this worst outcome. And then looking for, you know, ways to avoid them or looking for you know, analyzing them more specifically to kind of finding more data to say whether that is likely or not. Um, this is it's essentially just stopping you from being that cognitive miser. So we've spoken about a couple of techniques you can use to kind of avoid cognitive bias. But I think also more generally, you can be a bit smarter about how you listen to your intuitions. Because um, you had asked earlier, like, you know, is it that we should always think deliberatively, always be intuitive? Mm. Like how, you know, how do we know which situations to apply exactly. that in? Um, but what the research shows is that we can um, 
train our emotional intelligence. So we just analyze our intuitions uh, more rationally, essentially. Um, so lo there's lots of ways to do that. I think some people, so intuitions occur um, because it's like the non-conscious part of your brain is processing a lot of information that you can't think of consciously. And then that is triggering changes in your kind of body's physiology. So like it might be, if you think it's a really good investment, you might have like a, a little leap of your heart, like, or you're getting excited or the opposite. You might start feeling really anxious if, if like your subconscious is telling you like back away from this. Um, um, and some people just aren't very good at reading those intuitions at all, which is its own problem. Um, so practices like mindfulness can actually be good to kind of connect to your intuitions. But then more specifically, you want to be like super emotionally literate in how you describe those feelings and how you pinpoint the causes of those feelings. Because what happens a lot is that you might misread this kind of intu intuitive feeling through those biological signals. That, and the cause of it might be something completely different. So I think you there's studies showing that like people's Investment patterns change, like depending on whether their favorite football team won the day before or not. Oh, wow. that makes because sense. they're like, uh, you know, if it won, they're like, this is, they're like, I feel I great. I lose. have a really good yeah. feeling about yeah. <laughs> this uh, investment. Yeah. But it's like, that's just because you still feel happy from a kind of hangover from the day before. Uh, um, but if you have like, if you're emotionally literate and actually just having a big vocabulary of emotion words, so not just like, I feel crappy or I feel good, but you know, I feel jubilant or happy or content or, uh, you know, you might feel fear or you might feel uh, dread, you know, like having those specific words, just that seems to help people to tap into their, uh, the emotions of their intuitions and to be more specific and to trace the source of that. Um, so there were studies of people on these kind of fake stock markets, the people who were more emotionally literate in that way uh, made the better decisions. They were better able to read the risks and the potential benefits of an investment compared to people who had the kind of cruder emotional vocabulary. Yeah, because we apply the word anxiety to a whole broad spectrum of emotions, it seems nowadays. Pe yeah. People say, oh, I'm anxious. Like you said, they might have dread or fear. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's a big problem. Like, And some people I know, they'll just be, they'll be like, how was your day? And they'll just say, oh, it was manic. And that is their answer every time. But you really need to be specific. Like, was it, were you feeling angry with your colleague or were you just feeling like under pressure because, um, were you stressed in a positive way because this um, project means a lot to you or were you stressed in a negative way because um, you have too much to do and you don't think you can do anything um, to the best of your abilities? You know, being able to read those distinctions is what I'm talking about. And do you think in the moment that you're about to make a financial decision, you should be assessing your headspace in that way then and saying, how do I feel right now? And is there anything in this day or yesterday that could have impacted That's the way it. I feel? Yeah, like interrogate that intuition and to just think, to recognize that you feel how you feel and what, you know, what direction it's kind of pushing you in, but then to ask kind of why it's pushing you in that direction. And actually, uh, parallel line of research had looked at this with doctors' diagnoses, which, as I'd said, can be very biased. So sometimes, like the researchers said, just like had tried to get the doctors to just ignore their intuitions altogether and just were like, just think for it in this very logical way, like fill in this table, um, analyze the information and come to your decision without using intuitions at all. And their decisions were not very good either. But what they found was much better was if they asked the doctor to 
first of all, note down what their intuition was, like what they thought, you know, what their guts were telling them this patient had wrong with them. And to then kind of interrogate that intuition and to look for the reasons why it might be right or might be wrong, but to first at least acknowledge it. So I think, I mean, that's the take home really of what I'm saying is we need to recognize our intuitions, but then we need to analyze them in a logical manner rather than just kind of going with them kind going of thoughtlessly. Off your all yeah. the time. Yeah, you, exactly. Do you have any practical tips on how to do this? Because I know like most people aren't very good at self-reflection or like- Especially analyzing. in the moment. Especially, exactly. Especially in the moment when you're feeling those emotions. You might think about it later on, how did I feel? But I feel like later on, you've you kind of got like a rose-tinted filter. So you might, oh, I wasn't that angry or I wasn't that scared or, oh, I was probably just hungry. But like, how do you stop and say, I was trying to, how do you analyze your- it's really tough if you're time pressured. Yeah. That's always an issue. But if you can afford to take a break and kind of mull it over, I think having that distance is really good. Um, if you can't do that because like you're being asked to make your decision, you know, like within the next minute, there are psychological techniques that kind of create uh, a bit of emotional distance and like help you to get into that more reflective means of thinking. Um, now, one of those is called. Uh, self-distancing and there's lots of ways to apply it like some researchers shown that just kind of imagining your friend facing the same kind of dilemma and imagine giving your your uh, giving advice to your friend mm -hmm. gives you that distance asking yourself how you'll feel about this decision in you know in the future say in a year's time or five years time or ten years time that can give you that distance sometimes just talking to yourself in the third person, like linguistically can do the same thing. So just being like, um, David is contemplating blah, blah, blah. And just, yeah, it makes you sound a bit like Elmo from mm. Sesame Street. Like, you, said, you said a foreign language as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, so, really that is, so if you speak a foreign language, that also gives you uh, this. Je parle français, hablo espanol. What else I got for you? Je ne comprends pas. That's about all I knew in French. I do not understand. Said that, just said that. It's got, every, got you through every, life, yeah. 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 And you got a point for every question though. Because... <laughs> so this is known as the foreign language effect. Yeah. And Actually, like, so you might think, oh, like, what's the point of that if I'm not fluent? But actually, you don't have to be fluent, but you do, ha you have to have enough vocabulary to describe, you know, crudely what you're thinking of, like, so you have to have a certain level of proficiency, but, you know, you don't have to be perfect. Um, but yeah, that had shown, for example, there were really compelling experiments looking at loss aversion, those investments where people, you know, even when the odds are stacked in their favor, they'll ignore making the investment. The research has shown that if you present that in someone's second language, so triggering them to think in their second language, um, it almost completely eliminates that bias. So they're much more rational in making those decisions. Do you think this is why we always say as UK people that other places are more direct, but actually yeah. they're just engaging in their second language. So they remove a lot of the emotion out of their, oh. you yeah. know, the way they speak and... I think so. Um, so there are cultural norms. It's not just the foreign language effect. But actually, you know, if you think about it, like um, if someone swears at you in a foreign language or you swear in a foreign language, that has just a lot less of this kind of emotional impact compared to if it's like this word that you used when you were a kid and your mum like shouted at you for saying that word. Um, so it's that kind of thing with our native language each word has much more resonance because of all the experiences we've had, which is great. Like, mm. you know, in lots of ways, it makes the story you hear in your own language so much more vivid. But 
sometimes you don't want that. Sometimes you want things, you want to just like turn down the emotional volume just a bit to allow you to get into that reflective state of mind. And that's where the foreign language effect can really work in our favor. That's fascinating. Really, I like the idea of like, imagine if you were giving your friend advice, because especially with like relationships, lots of my friends have loads of advice for everyone else. But then when they're in a relationship, I'm like, you're literally doing the things that you told like me off or told my sister off or told your friend off for doing. And you're in the same situation, but you're doing the opposite. So it's like, yeah, everyone has good advice for other people in relationships. But when it's their own, they can't see that they're the problem. Just in life. I can't see the wood for the trees. That's what, yeah. yeah. I speak to other YouTubers and like, you know, I we basically have the same conversation with each other from different, but we're just they're they're stepped away from the situation, so they don't they're not wrapped up in the emotion of it. Yeah. So they can just give you the advice. It's like you're speaking in a mirror, basically. It's just yeah. one side of it's quite emotional at that point. Yeah, exactly. So taking another's perspective is also a good way of avoiding uh, bias, as long as you trust that other person. Um, but yeah, that phenomenon of giving other people better advice than you would give yourself. That's called Solomon's paradox um, in psychology. And it's been proven really robustly that we're, our decision-making is wiser when we're thinking about someone else's problem compared to our own, unless we use psychological distancing to overcome it. Why? Why are we so useless? Uh, So this is because if you're really immersed in the emotions of the situation, like that, you have that emotional drag and that is triggering all of those biases and things like motivated reasoning that is like, it's just making your thinking like a complete mess, essentially. How is that useful though? Mm. why, Why is that there, you know, in that moment when you need your brain the most? Why does it let you down in that sense? Yeah, it's frustrating, isn't it? Very. I wonder. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think in evolution if it would have been a definite disadvantage in that some things we've got that don't work out great for us in modern life is just because it also wouldn't have necessarily affected our survival. So I wonder if it's... What, so um, one, one example that I have is there's you, we want to be socially accepted, don't we? Because yeah. maybe from an evolutionary perspective, to not be would be death because you'd be right. kicked out of the tribe and yeah. you'd be dead. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now, like putting yourself forward is really valuable. Like sticking yeah. your head above the trenches, especially online. Yeah. But you will face hate online because yeah. if a million people see you, you know, at least a hundred of them are going to hate you. Yeah. So you kind of have to fight against that internally. It's like a really hard battle every yeah. time you you put yourself out there. Yeah, exactly. And so that's also why we suffer from groupthink because, you know, like where we're, yeah, where we're, um, it's French. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, where we're amplifying each other's biases because, you know, they're all kind of aligned and no one's, no one dares to question what the status quo because we have that fear of being excluded. Um, But you can set up that, the kind of correct culture in your group where actually, you know, it's it's the social norm to be able to disagree. And then that will help you to avoid that group think. Yeah, like certain companies have that within their, their core values. Mm. Ray Dalio says that, that yeah. that's a core value of his hedge fund is to anyone can raise an idea. Anyone can criticize anyone from yeah. the top down. Whereas I've worked in like dictatorships essentially where it comes from the top and you don't question it. Yeah, exactly. So that's, you know, very, that bears out with the research. Um, and what's ironic there is that often it's the companies with the kind of culture of positivity that are the 
most guilty of that kind of dictatorship that you say, you know, it's like, like a cult, like, yeah. you know, where they start off all happy and like for God and then they all kill each other. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it's like, you know, often Drink in most Kool-Aid. companies yeah. are like, I don't want problems, only solutions. But it's like sometimes there's a problem that really needs to be tackled, but you don't have an immediate solution. But if you're kind of screaming at people because they're being too negative, um, that is not going to solve the problem. Speaking of group circles, I really want to know the answer to this question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can we read it out again just to try and just, yeah. just to see if we can get a last ditch attempt at it? So Jack is looking at Anne, but Anne is looking at George. Jack is married, but George is not. Is a married person looking at an unmarried person? Yes, no, or cannot be determined. I mean, Jack could be looking at George as well as Anne. So I'm going to say yes. I mean, it, it, it doesn't, Jack is looking at. He could just be. Yeah, I can. I can look at both of you right now. So wait, it was yes, and I think you said cannot, cannot be, be determined. determined. Okay. I'm definitely right. So the, <laughs> come from, come from, like some kind of bias going on in there. Even if you tell him he's wrong now, he'll be like, right, no, wrong. He, he's wrong. <laughs> he's wrong, I'm right. Okay, so the right answer is yes. It's God given, mate. The, but, <laughs> Just soak it in. <laughs> so, but most people say cannot be determined, and that's because it's, scientists call it a like lure, um, in that it's like, um, it's, the like intuitive answer, even though it's wrong. Yeah. And you have to kind of override that and think about it a little bit more objectively and uh, deliberatively. Now you can do that by, so wait, if I get the question again. Um, so the, the unknown here is, is Anne married yeah. or unmarried really? Yeah. And so you just have to consider both of those hypotheses. So if Anne is married, then Anne is looking at George, who isn't. If Anne isn't married, Jack, who is married, is looking at Anne, who isn't. So in both cases, a married person is looking at an unmarried person. That was so much more simple oh, than like, we really should have got that. Well, you did, yeah. but you didn't understand why you got it. You just got it. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Uh, just blind luck, but I'm gonna take it. <laughs> <laughs> One in the wing column. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, it's so annoying that because yeah, the the question was obvious, but you all, you instantly start focusing on George and stuff for some reason. Like, you know, yeah, exactly. And but I think what this captures is like that cognitive reflection. So it's you know, are you overriding an intuition and thinking more carefully? But it's also what we often forget to do in our decision making is to just um, imagine different scenarios. Like two separate. But even I tried to. Yeah, yeah I, I tried really. Well, I was yeah. going like, you know, you're trying to, and you can't. And I was like, surely the answer can't be like it can't be determined because that would be imagine. a really bad question if you can't figure out the answer. But I was yeah. like, that's going to be my answer because yeah. you can't figure it out. But so you I, I gave that answer the first time oh, I saw great it. Great minds think alike, and yeah. then Damo just does his own thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, one of my favourites is um, how many animals did Moses take on the ark? Ooh, a lot. Oh no, he took none. They could walk themselves on. Is that your answer? <laughs> okay, actually, I think specifically it's how many of each species did oh, he take? Two. Well, no, he took one of each species. Two. No, right. Because well, if he took one, two, they can't two, procreate. Two by two. The animals went two, two by, by two. Two by two. Hurrah. Hurrah. <laughs> yeah, so two. Oh, no. two, two. So they can have. And let's not jump to conclusions here, mate. Let's uh, think about this because. Yeah, you we know, can't get you, done again. Can you ask the question again and then we'll get okay, to yeah. How many um, animals of each species did Moses take on the ark? <gasps> oh. No. 
Moses didn't take anything on yeah, the like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> I was thinking about the, this is why I, get big bucks, the I was looking at the species and I was thinking, <laughs> well yeah it was Noah yeah, yeah, trying yeah. To trick this us. is what I mean you got to listen to the question yeah. mate. Ah. this is you got to listen to the question it's full of, full of one more it's full of tricks yeah, isn't yeah, it yeah. one more um, I'll have to look yeah, uh, cool. so in a lake there is a patch of lily pads every day the patch doubles in size if it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, how long would it take for the patch to cover half of the lake? See, I got this. Yeah, uh, so I, I know this answer. Yeah, then you're not answer then. 48 days. Yeah, it takes 48 days. It takes days. 48 to- It doubles every day. 47 days. There go. Come yeah. on, <laughs> come on, I finally got one. I was like, I was literally gonna say half of, yeah, I was like, What's half 48? 24. Yeah, I was yeah, going to say yeah. 24, but I was yeah. like, no, that's too easy. So again, 24 is the kind of intuitive law. Yeah, it's like the, if there's a drink and you drink half of it a day, how long yeah. does it take to drink? And it's like, you kind of- Forever. You can never yeah. get to the end of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of compound interest again, actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In reverse. Yeah. Nice. Fascinating stuff. Honestly, the book is amazing and it's it's full of those tidbits and- what what I got for, you read it and you think oh thank like I'm not alone in my in my ways do you know what I mean yeah. and sometimes when you trip yourself up I think you you kick yourself really hard whereas what you do is you you apply the science to the the traps in our own mind mm. you know yeah, yeah thanks I mean because I think um, my publisher were a bit worried that it was <laughs> um, it sounds too negative like right, smart no. people would be triggered by it but I think the optimistic message is actually that once we are aware of these errors, um, like it's comforting to know other people are doing the same things. And then, you know, we can learn to improve, like we can all be smarter. And actually, you know, even if you don't have like a super high IQ, um, by applying like all of the things you learn in this book, you're going to be out, you know, out passing like all of the people who might have like a PhD or like a better education than you, but you're applying your intelligence much more smartly. If you missed anything in that episode, don't worry. We do a really good summary of everything that's gone on and what we discussed in our newsletter. You can sign up using the link in the description. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It really makes a difference and lets us know what we're doing right. This is not financial advice. The reason it's not financial advice is because it's not tailored to you. Like we say a lot on the podcast, investments can fall and rise. In fact, this is almost a guarantee. Remember, past performance is no guarantee of future results, so your money is always at risk with investing. Also, remember other fees may apply. I'm Damo. I'm T. The episode was recorded by Jack Hobbs. It was produced and edited by Ruth Edwards. Johnny Hunter is in charge of all our marketing, and it's all brought together by Will Stolomon. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.